Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. My name is Jamil Jaffer, and welcome to the National Security Institute's 2020-2021 initiative on China. We are thrilled today uh, to have two excellent uh, speakers um, and moderators uh, with us today. Uh, today is our featured event on competition cyberspace. Uh, the National Security Institute was founded three years ago to fill a gap in academia by standing up for a robust American national security posture and providing realistic, actionable recommendations to policymakers. Uh, to achieve that goal, today we're going to talk about uh, China's rise and this issue of competition in the cybersecurity arena. We have with us today Jennifer Griffin, who serves currently as a national security correspondent for Fox News. Since 2007, Jennifer has traveled and reported daily for the Pentagon, where she questions senior military leaders, travels to war zones, and reports on all aspects of the military, including the current wars against ISIS and al-Qaeda. She's covered major international news stories extensively, including the attack on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, Libya, on September 11, 2012, and the killing of Osama bin Laden in 2011. Jennifer is a graduate of Harvard University and received a BA in comparative politics. She's also a co-author of this burning land, Lessons from the Front Lines of the Transformed Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, which she wrote with her husband, Greg Meyer, regarding their experience in Israel. And we're joined today also by Vice Admiral T.J. White, who's had three decades of experience as a national security ex ex practitioner, strategist, and cyber operations expert, leading joint military formations and combined intelligence community organizations. He's commanded all levels within the Navy and the Joint Service, and most recently uh, left the Navy as Commander, United States Fleet Cyber Command, U.S. 10th Fleet, U.S. Navy Space Command, and previously served as Commander, U.S. Cyber Mission Force, U.S. Cyber Command. He's a former Director of Intelligence for U.S. Indo-PACOM, and has served globally in various combat zones and conflict areas supporting competition dynamics. He's a 1987 graduate of the Naval Academy and holds additional diplomas from the Naval Postgraduate School, the Naval War College, and NDU. I'd, I'd like to thank Jennifer and Vice Admiral White for joining us. Jennifer, over to you. Take it away. Thank you, Jamil. Thanks for that great introduction. And I'm so grateful to be joined today by Admiral T.J. White. Uh, we, uh, When I think back of where cyber has come and how in your 33-year career in the Navy, you went from a cryptologist to a cyber expert uh, and you focused on the Indo-PACOM region, but your time up at Fort Meade as head of uh, the 10th Fleet that was really just established 11 years ago. So we're talking about a really a brand new part. When we look at our war fighting machine, uh, cyber is a new battlefield, as we've said many times before. You had 14,000 sailors under you at Fort Meade. Tell me a little bit, uh, TJ, how you got into uh, cyber. How did you go from being a cryptologist to a cyber expert? Jennifer, thanks. Uh, and to Jamil and the team, it's a pleasure to be here today. Um, yeah, so honestly, uh, Jennifer, begins a little bit before that. Uh, so, you know, my interest in things national security and service began with a very extraordinary high school guidance counselor who uh, encouraged and challenged me to think about uh, applying to any or one of the service academies uh, to begin a, a career potentially of service. Uh, and she guided me through that process, uh, and it worked out great. And uh, I was blessed to receive an appointment uh, to the Naval Academy, uh, and I went. Uh, my whole plan uh, originally was to fulfill my commitment, get a degree in engineering, and then transition out. Uh, 
but uh, I had a chance to serve on Battleship Missouri, uh, which was an amazing experience for such a historical ship. Uh, and it's a little bit of a story about, you know, was that a modern warfighting platform in 1990-91 when she went to conflict in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, given that she was essentially designed and blueprinted in the mid-30s. So I showed up as a young ensign on a ship that was effectively 50 years old, um, but she had a position of prominence uh, in that conflict. Uh, I was blessed to, um, to serve in a position on that ship that allowed me to get insight into uh, the U.S. intelligence community, and, um, and I learned a lot. And I was impressed with what they did and how they supported our operations. So when I was in my master's degree program, in Monterey, I pursued a, a lateral transfer redesignation to cryptology, uh, which I got. Um, I had a couple of tours uh, in the Navy and in the intelligence community and began to specialize in cyberspace in the early 2000s with an assignment at U.S. 7th Fleet uh, in Japan, embarked on the USS Blue Ridge. Uh, so I just kept enjoying it. Uh, the deal I made was if it ever stopped being fun, uh, we would transition out, but it always was fun. And the people were amazing. So that was my journey uh, into uh, cyberspace via cryptology. And as I'm fond of saying, uh, in the national security business, um, there is no cyberspace but for cryptology. Uh, And that is reflective uh, in the mission um, generally executed at the National Security Agency and elsewhere, which is about making and breaking codes. And in the national security business, we have to trust our communications. We have to trust our command and control. Uh, They are peerless at it. And uh, the energy and the insight, uh, the innovation and the sheer intellectual throw weight that they bring to the fight uh, is incredible. And it was a great privilege to be associated with them in some small measure throughout my career. Uh, So that's kind of it. Well, it's a fascinating journey. And I know uh, you're down in uh, Houston right now and you you experienced that power outage that came from this severe winter weather, four days without electricity. Uh, You might have thought at that time that that was a a cyber attack or it could have. We've been hearing for years about what will happen if China or Russia get into uh, the U.S. infrastructure. We now have evidence that they have gotten into that infrastructure. Uh, what did you think when you were going through that that uh, last week or the week before? <laughs> well, other than sort of being worried about, um, you know, pretty pedestrian things like uh, how to stay warm and how to get water, um, it, it didn't take long to think about uh, the vulnerability that uh, we have and the great dependency that we have as a nation on these things called critical infrastructure sectors, right? So 16 of them throughout the nation a great partnership between the private sector. You know, they effectively in the U.S. own and operate, you know, probably 90, 90, 95% of all that would be considered uh, cyberspace in and around the U.S. that impacts the U.S. citizens and consumers. And it's fragile. Uh, And it's fragile for a lot of reasons. Some of the technology is very old and some of the technology is very, very new. And making all of that work together seamlessly with a high degree of interoperability and confidence is a challenge every day. Um, you know, there's just uh, interestingly some recent reporting over the last couple of days about uh, some global signaling maybe coming from China with respect to India. Border clashes that have been on and off over the last couple of decades have taken a new level of, of interest and activity over the last year or so. And, uh, you know, a recent report talking about Chinese affiliated actors being inside the Indian power grid. Uh, it doesn't take long to think or to make a logical leap that that would be possible here in the United States. Let's go back and dig in a little bit about that particular case. We've heard so much about solar winds attributed to Russia, and it's made us think a lot about our own vulnerabilities, infrastructure, supply chain issues. 
But that incident that you're referring to in India took place in Mumbai, Mumbai on October 13th. Very scary. The lights went out. Not an unusual situation in India. If anybody has ever lived there, you know, you have load shedding and, and power goes out. But the train stopped working. The hospitals went down. The stock market had to stop. Uh, this was uh, and then when what we are now learning is that there were actually there was Chinese malware found in their systems. Talk me through. Uh, there had been the clashes, as you mentioned, up in the Himalayas, but this was, you know, thousands of miles south of that. What was the message China was trying to send? Are we entering a new era? And so t- walk us through that particular case. Sure. Um, so my perspective on this might be different four or five months ago when I might have had access to more sensitive reporting. Uh, I might have a little bit more uh, confidence in what I could say. I would also probably not be saying anything. Um, so, so honestly, Jennifer, I, I would just offer that, that uh, what follows now is uh, conjecture, uh, but I think it is reasonable. And, um, and I, I think that um, you know, there's a lot of reporting uh, in the open source that talks about vulnerability to uh, power grid, um, commonly understood as you know, um, ICS or SCADA systems or operational technology, uh, and how um, those who are in the business of producing and generating and distributing power uh, find great advantage in being able to reduce the manpower effort by being able to support remoted operations. Uh, the value proposition of remoted operations is, you know, hypothetically in the United States, uh, you don't have to get a guy up at 2 a.m. to get in a, in a pickup truck or a crew truck and drive 150 miles to go isolate a possible fault in the power system. You can do it all remotely and you can do it at convenience and you can do it with great precision uh, and effect. And so it, it is likely that uh, if what is uh, reported is, is factually accurate and complete, and uh, there's no reason to suspect that it's not, but I think we need to be careful with the terms. I'll return to that in a minute. Uh, I think China would, would say, uh, as we interact on the world stage in conversations and dialogue between nations, two very large nations, uh, you might, on the one hand, think, India, about how far you are prepared to press uh, the case or the argument. And uh, we may have outsized ability to have an impact on your domestic security and stability. And I think that's honestly one of the things that cyberspace represents that we haven't fully uh, thought about. It moves fast. uh, It moves at great scale. It runs deep and it uh, it takes action across a wide front. So you mentioned um, border clashes in the Himalayas at uh, 10, 12, 15, 18,000 feet uh, and an opportunity to impact the power grid 1,500 miles south. And so uh, the ability to distinguish where the front line is and where the rear area is might get a little uh, confusing. I would ask uh, Jennifer just to be very clear that we, that we, we try to be very precise, you know, um, when we use terminology, uh, systems being targeted by cyber actors, uh, infrastructure being exploited, uh, and then the word attack. Um, you've been in the national security business for a long time reporting on it. I think you would say the uniform military tries to be very, very deliberate and precise in the use of the term attack. Uh, I think that that comes at the end of a probably pretty long chain um, and it's very deliberate. And, uh, and um, I don't know that uh, you know, there's a lot of opinion about what is or isn't an attack in cyberspace. Uh, I think a second thing I would like to, uh, to sort of point out, whether it's solar winds, which you mentioned, which is a public disclosure in uh, December, uh, mid-December of 2020, 
or the power outage in Mumbai, which happened in, I think, um, October of 20, uh, it is likely that uh, whoever the adversary was began to target and conduct operations in those infrastructures well in advance of those dates, right? So cyberspace uh, occupies this, this unusual character where it moves very, very fast and it moves very, very slow. Uh, in order to get to the very fast unfolding effect, you probably have to commit an awful lot of time, energy, and effort uh, and invested what we would call target systems analysis to gain access and to maneuver uh, in through those networks. Should we assume that China and Russia have both infiltrated our infrastructure, our electrical grid? Yeah, yeah so I, I would say uh, I had a previous boss of mine uh, say uh, as, a, as a combatant commander, he was, he was paid to look through, uh, to look at the world through a dark lens and to always consider the world as a glass uh, half empty as opposed to half full. I think if you're in the national security business and your charge is to defend the nation, you kind of have to assume the worst case. So uh, I am, I am uh, easily intellectually and emotionally committed to the idea uh, that, that we are certainly exposed, very vulnerable, almost completely dependent, and as a consequence, if we think China and Russia are peer actors, um, we, should, we should view ourselves as penetrated. And can we assume that we've also penetrated their electrical grids and infrastructure? Yeah, so I would be, I would be loath to talk too openly about uh, U.S. capability, so I won't. But I will say uh, it is the business of the U.S. Department of Defense and its military to be prepared and to consider the full range and the full continuum of operational capability in all domains. Uh, That's what we get paid to do. I think what's interesting about the China uh, story that the, in Mumbai is that for years, for the last decade or so, we've thought of China as sort of siphoning up intellectual property. Their cyber attacks were slightly different than the Russians in that way. And now it seems like we've entered into a 2.0 situation where they're, sent, they're flexing their muscles a little bit and they're showing that actually, you know, we do have an ability to, uh, to use this as a weapon. What are you seeing? And is that a fair assessment? Um, yeah, I think the first obligation we have in this space is to look at any competitor or adversary uh, fulsomely, completely, and with no blinders on. And I think we should look at uh, China um, as very, very capable, certainly competent, uh, they have their own national security strategy and interests as they define them. The challenge we have is that they historically have been more opaque to us than not. Although, interestingly, they do publish a lot. Uh, they do publish a lot in uh, military journals and in the public domain and the open source. And, uh, and a lot of their rhetoric that is 15, 20, 25 years old has unfolded over time. Um, well, China, China is... Uh, they are an interesting, I, I, I fear calling them anomaly, but uh, we, should have been, we should have been more thoughtful uh, and apply a little bit more foresight with respect to China, in my opinion. We know they went to school on us in 1990-91. Uh, you know, the U.S. military's performance in the Gulf War, uh, sometimes referred to as the first information war, was stunning. Uh, you know, commonly referred to from precision targeting to 
cruise missiles at a thousand kilometers to the pace of maneuver that the Marines and ground forces uh, conducted. Um, the, the full instantiation of a fully integrated air operations center uh, to manage both ISR and precision strike, uh, amazing. China went to school on that. Their ability to not respond to U.S. carrier strike group presence uh, in and around Taiwan and the Taiwan Straits in the mid-90s um, probably uh, shook them to their core. And they embarked, um, you've been at the Pentagon for a while, so you know we, we do this funny thing called five-year planning cycles called bombs. Uh, they embarked on probably five or six years back-to-back of continuous POM 100% investment. Um, if you take a look at the scale which we've they've generated uh, their military forces, designed out of whole cloth and built from the ground up uh, to be competitive uh, in great power competition, not just in coastal waters, but um, in expeditionary operations uh, and in blue water, what we would call a blue water Navy. In addition to that, um, five, six years ago, seven years ago, they started the One Belt, One Road initiative, which is a purposeful melding of their economic interests and, and a vast checkbook to their military interests. Um, and now you have President Xi uh, commenting and publishing uh, about the rise in the ascendancy of the East and the decline of the West. And these are all things that have happened. They were forecast. They talk about wanting to do it. And we just appear to be a little too casual in observing them deliver on what they promised. So have we entered a new phase with China? And and again, back to cyber, have they moved into a new phase where they're more uh, in, uh, you don't like the word attack, but more an offensive role? Yeah, so I think, um, I, I just think we need to be judicious about the, the word attack, right? Um, but other than that, um, you know, if you read U.S., uh, you know, Joint Pub 3.0, and it talks about, um, which I encourage everyone to get, you can go to it, download it from the Joint Staff. It talks about offensive uh, cyber operations, which includes uh, those things that look like exploit and attack. In order to get to an attack or to conduct, you know, forward maneuver in cyberspace, you have to have the ability to exploit in order to gain knowledge and insight about the target. I suspect that what China has done um, uh, is just recognize the great value um, and the ability to operate with speed and scale. They can do it to a degree, at least in the beginning, with a, with a, a sense of anonymity. Uh, and so uh, when you grow up in the West and you think about these Western principled, um, you know, liberal democracies and the way that they, they value the sense of attribution, um, you know, we, we are reluctant um, to cross that line until we have 100% uh, certainty. And that is increasingly difficult to get in cyberspace. I think, uh, I think China is taking great advantage of the opportunity that operations in cyberspace represent. I was a bit surprised to hear that China had a hacker army of between 50 and 100,000 uh, troops, if you will. How does that compare to the U.S.? Where do we stand? Yeah, that's, so that's a really good question. Um, you know, what's commonly understood and available uh, inside the cyber mission force, which is organized uh, out of the services and presented to U.S. Cyber Command as the command commander. You know, that's a little over 6,000 dedicated forces to focus on that effort. Um, and, and so you might say that it looks like 6,000 on the U.S. side and 50 or 60,000, you know, a, a, a 10x uh, on the Chinese side. That's probably, um, that's probably a good planning assumption. 
Um, I think you could also ask yourself, how many ships have the Chinese built in the last decade? How many ships has the U.S. Navy built in the last decade? How many planes have they built in the last decade? How many planes has the U.S. military built? Um, you know, how many, how many uh, missiles do they fire on an annual uh, training exercise? And how many do we fire, right? They are, they're going at scale. Now, it is a little unusual, right? So, you know, China has an 80 or an 800 nautical mile problem depending on how you look at what their operations are across the Straits of Taiwan or in the South China Sea, uh, they have the ability to safely transit to their overseas bases in Djibouti and elsewhere, largely because of the presence of the United States military overseas, providing access, not just to the U.S., but secure access to everyone that wants to operate uh, on the high seas. Uh, and so we haven't quite figured out what those paradigms could or should be uh, in cyberspace. Let's talk about Taiwan. I was listening to the Senate Armed Services hearing yesterday and H.R. McMaster was being questioned and he suggested that he's very concerned that between the Olympics and the party Congress that Taiwan could be in a very dangerous situation in terms of Chinese actions. Um, do you agree with that? How worried should we, would, should we be that China is going to take advantage of U.S. distraction, uh, the internal politics here in the U.S. keeping us from uh, focusing as much on Taiwan. Yeah, well, um, H.R. McMaster's has had an interesting uh, perch to observe things um, at the National Security Council at scale, right? So I would be low to counteract that. I might say, though, that that we ought to be um, – we shouldn't kid ourselves about what the motivations of China are. Right. Uh, I think increasingly the one country, two systems uh, that is beginning to pale uh, in terms of their acceptance of that. Um, you know, they are under a current international treaty obligation with the UK regarding the status of Hong Kong. They don't seem to care about that at all. Uh, they are doing something out in the West with the Uyghur population. Uh, there doesn't seem to be consensus about that, but certainly something is happening at scale to, you know, uh, part of their domestic population and citizenry. Uh, that has a population count with two commas in it. You know, so that looks like a minimum of one million or more than that. And that, that's just a, a large number. Um, they are harnessing things like cyberspace, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence uh, to achieve effects uh, with facial recognition, social credit scores in their domestic population. They're applying that technology and how they are able to uh, clamp down on dissent uh, domestically to operations in Hong Kong. You think about what they're doing domestically, you think about what they're doing in Hong Kong, uh, you know, under a international treaty, which they, you know, some might use the word a little alarmist, abrogated that treaty in some fashion. You know, Taiwan is, uh, Taiwan is a pretty simple military problem. Uh, it's a very small distance. Um, and uh, and uh, China has mass. And um, I do think that the West is generally... Um, we have a history of being easily uh, distracted. So um, we got to pay attention to Taiwan. Uh, e even if it's not about Taiwan, uh, this is speaking very pragmatically, and this is a little impolitic, so I apologize and don't intend to give offense. Um, but, you know, all the chip fabs are there. So uh, if you're talking about modern America, uh, industry and society and convenience and commercial activity and market dynamics and investment, and ultimately, our quality of life, uh, the linkage between chip fabs in Taiwan and uh, the U.S. market and U.S. sovereignty, that's pretty clear.
explain that a little bit more and also how hacking comes in because it's my understanding that China's already pillaged the semi semiconductors, the chips, the all the technology that Taiwan had at its disposal, that's all been siphoned off. Yeah, so that's a good question, right? So I, I just think, um, you know, there's a lot of things that attach to the cyberspace. Um, and so sometimes uh, it's difficult to explain to people about what it all means and how it all connects. And so I've sort of adopted this idea that cyberspace has two um, general components. One uh, I've called the ecosystem, which is the technology that makes cyberspace. Uh, the other is an environment, and that is um, people and organizations of people uh, making decisions and doing things uh, as a result or in cyberspace. Um, to build a chip fab, you know, you need a lot of capital. Uh, you need the ability to design um, in a very dynamic way to take advantage of uh, introductions in technology. The other thing you need is a, a large degree in access to strategic materials, which, um, you know, China has a large portion of it. And their ability to impact or influence or clamp down on that supply uh, is pretty extensive. Um, so I think um, when, when one takes a historical look at those things that drive uh, some national security concerns. For the United States, um, we didn't know what we were getting into in the 1850s with oil in Western Pennsylvania. When Spindletop and South Tax, uh, East Texas happened in 1903, something began to emerge. Um, and you might say that oil had little to do with events in August of 1914, but it may have had a lot to do. Uh, with events between uh, in the interwar years uh, and the U.S. economy, its association and attachment to the petrodollar. Um, you know, I've heard data is the new oil and there is no data but for chip fabs. And so when you talk about uh, a great dependency, um, right now it looks like that dependency is Taiwan. So would it be too strong an analogy or is this the analogy you're trying to make that, you know, in the 90s, uh, we, would, we were willing to go to war over oil in the Middle East. We really should be rethinking, recalibrating Americans thinking that we could have to go to war over uh, chips in uh, Taiwan. And, may, and I'm not sure most Americans understand why Taiwan is, is so important to the U.S., yeah, so I would be loath, uh, you know, to go on record saying that we need to be prepared to go to war uh, over anything other than what I would consider is the individual agency of U.S. citizens and the sovereignty of our nation. Uh, that being said, though, um, you know, historically, I've been paid to, to think pragmatically about uh, consequences and dependencies. And, um, and nations have gone to war over a lot less in in the status of, of chip manufacturing and design. And it's not just you alluded to this little bit about China stealing. Um, you know, they, they have perhaps gotten access to a lot of the design features and attributes, the blueprints, as it were, uh, the extraordinary physics uh, and electrical engineering that goes into chip manufacturing and design. But their ability to produce those chips, you know, they don't have it. They're on that path. They're investing as a nation to build that organic capability. The U.S. has offshored that capability. We can do the design, absolutely, but we don't have the ability to sustain our own domestic economy, um, you know, within our shores. And, you know, a lot of people smarter than I can talk better about onshoring, offshoring, the balance. 
but it also points to the value in having friends and allies, right? And uh, I can tell you, um, you know, my time in the Pacific certainly reinforced what I had, you know, heard an awful lot of, which is, um, you know, the value proposition for the United States is to be viewed as a, as a trusted uh, partner on the global stage and to operate with allies and partners. Um, we ought to be fundamentally prepared to go it alone if compelled and have to, but we will always do better with friends and allies. Let's go back to that issue of uh, supply chains and offshore production. We certainly saw at the start of the pandemic and the creation of the vaccines, the dependencies on China for everything from, uh, you know, the fluid that goes into the little uh, containers that are needed for the vaccine production all of it was made in China. And I, I was having conversations at the Pentagon yesterday about how uh, we were caught so flat-footed with that supply chain uh, for biotech being outside the country. And Jamil has written a lot about supply chain issues. Solar Winds has brought up the issue of supply chains and, and how, um, you know, if you're you get in through the back door, you know, things can be implanted. If you're not in control of your supply chain, things can be implanted. And then, um, you know, you have what you have with solar winds. So talk to me about that. What do you see as the greatest problem? What are the solutions? What do we need to be doing as a country? Yeah. Um, wow. That's, uh, you know, you're opening me up to a long soliloquy. So I apologize if I run long. <laughs> I'm Look, not going to so- do that. I'm not going to let yeah. you do that. Okay, so so fair enough. Um, look, step one is to uh, is to um, is to under to look at the data and to recognize the situation, right? And uh, and it is clearly um, it is clearly obvious that uh, there are supply chain dependencies. If you think about the pandemic, whether it was getting masks from China or getting an initial round of vaccines from China or any other, or some would say getting the getting the virus from China, right? You know that was a very efficient supply chain, not problem as it turned out. Um, but, but I would also say, you know, the quality of the supply chain, uh, sometimes those masks weren't the best quality. Uh, maybe their vaccine continues to pan out. Um, uh, and we'll see. They are trying really hard to make their supply chain better. Um, the issue that we have, I think, is, you know, we don't warehouse that much anymore. Everything is just in time in our supply chain, whether it's software or hardware. Uh, whether it's a gallon of milk at the store or a pack of diapers at Walmart, you know, they, there's, there's no large scale cache or, or I would say arsenal of built up reserve stock. And so we benefit deeply as consumers by that efficiency. That's how you continue to get more better quality uh, at, you know, efficient pricing. Um, I also think that whether it's industrial goods or, you know, internet or knowledge goods, the ability to safeguard and protect your intellectual property is very, very important. And that's going to look like how do you do cybersecurity and how you do cyber defense. Um, I've heard the term, we need to adopt a whole of nation plus approach. So that whole of nation is bigger than whole of government. Uh, The whole of government looks like a partnership between the executive branch, the legislative branch, uh, state and local. We need to do a better job of uh, how we interact together um, how in the U.S. we exercise those authorities. That might be something that looks like the Coast Guard, the Title 32 authorities, the Guard Reserve Bureau, their attachment that they have to governors uh, and ability to do that sort of cyber reserve core uh, might be something that could be very, very beneficial. 
um, how you take state, local, federal, and how do you partner with academia and the commercial space and the private sector. Uh, I think that's going to be very, very important. Um, and then that whole of nation plus allies and partners. Um, a previous boss of mine has talked uh, pretty publicly about uh, collective security and collective defense. And I think that that's, that's spot on. It has to be more than just exchanging data. We have to share uh, information and knowledge. Um, and I, I think that is sort of step number one. And, uh, you know, much like, um, you know, honestly, much like I grew up as a kid watching Saturday Night you know, that's how I learned how a bill became a law. Uh, you know, I watched that cartoon over and over and over. And I just think that we need to adopt some sort of, um, of um, you know, public outreach where we educate and inform citizens. Well, if you're looking back, what do you think were the watershed moments in terms of the uh, U.S.-China relationship going back to 2010 in terms of cyberspace and incidents? What, what, how has it built? Yeah. What were the key moments? Uh, well, I think in the context of China, um, you could probably go back farther than that and just understand that they decided to learn from U.S. operations in the information domain, as I previously talked about. I think China uh, in the mid to late 90s pretty rapidly saw that their future on the world stage was going to be tied to effectively a, a Chinese Communist Party managed and directed national economy uh, that they would very uh, deliberately and carefully allow to adopt some degree of free market dynamic. That frankly powered their um, that powered their acceptance into the WTO and they have been playing for a long time on this stage of continuing to be viewed, asking to be viewed as a developing economy. Uh, within the space of about three decades, they have gone from being you know, somewhere way down the list uh, to now being the number one or the number two economy on the global stage, depending on you know, how you slice it. That is an extraordinary uh, trajectory. Uh, and so if you begin with competition then, um, honestly, uh, our motivation for, you know, my recollection, uh, having been sort of in the early stages of standing up U.S. Cyber Command, it, it didn't begin and it wasn't about China in 2007, 2008, 2009. It was really about vulnerabilities that were presented to U.S. military command and control systems, which has been written about um, uh, and, you know, frankly attributed to the Russians at the time. So I think we were thinking about Russia uh, as a commonly understood peer actor, certainly in the espionage stage, and uh, you know, from a global dynamic as a deterrence partner uh, and competitor. I think China uh, has emerged um, um, probably beginning um, with uh, President Xi. That would be very easy to say that. Operations that they undertook in the South China Sea with building islands, the establishment of the One Belt, One Road, uh, the things that they've done um, with the market economy, um, so I, I think it would be difficult to say competition with China is only about cyberspace and just started recently. Um, we often talk in terms of dime, uh, diplomacy, information, military, and economic instruments and national power. One might argue that China has a better dime plan than we do. Are, are you seeing the Belt and Road Initiative seems to have hit some hiccups, some some road uh some bumps in the road, if you will. Uh, what, what are you seeing? Has it come to an end or are they going to push on with that it, or, or are our countries on to them and pushing back? Where, where do we stand? 
Yep. I, I, so my sense is that, that some countries are onto them, um, but it's, uh, it's very difficult to overlook the combination of promise delivery on infrastructure, uh, which on the surface looks like an improvement to your citizens' quality of life and ease of life, uh, and, the, and the almost <laughs> unconscionably favorable financing dynamic. Um, they're writing. Uh, they're writing a lot of fat checks, and I, I think if you are, uh, if you are a small nation or an emerging nation or uh, a developing nation, um, what used to look like kind of Washington consensus IMF funding to sort of power, um, you know, your advance, um, that's getting very hard. What shift in policy that the Trump administration carried out? Do you think? was one of the best things they did. And what advice would you give to the Biden administration in terms of how to approach the next, you know, decade with in the competition? Oh, Jennifer, thanks for that opportunity to uh, preclude me ever getting a job in government ever again. <laughs> Got to get um, you on. <laughs> yeah. So look, I would, I would say that, um, that every administration going back to the second Bush administration has made progress in understanding and recognizing, uh, cyber and cyberspace as something that need to be better understood and reckoned with. Um, I think, uh, you know, the initiative that was the national, uh, I think, um, cybersecurity strategic initiative under the Bush administration, that then became uh, impetus under the Obama administration to actually establish U.S. Cyber Command uh, as an example. So I'm very comfortable talking about that dynamic and why that was very important. Uh, inside the Department of Defense, the recognition of cyberspace as an operational domain. When the Department of Defense does something big, like stand up uh, a command on the path to be its own unified command, uh, that means someone in the U.S. government is taking it seriously. And that began a dialogue with industry and academia about, you know, just really what cyberspace uh, could and should be. Other things that DOD did, they stood up to Jake. Um, you know, uh, the administration empowered DHS with uh, uh, CISA uh, and organizations like that. Uh, I think that's all well and right. I will say uh, one of the things that the previous administration did um, uh, as, a as a military practitioner in cyberspace, um, they established the expectation uh, that we would um, be prepared and be proficient to conduct operations in cyberspace. And, um, and that goes a long way. And uh, I think recent activity by this administration with thinking about competition with China, thinking about supply chain dynamics, uh, doing a review of uh, critical infrastructure vulnerabilities, uh, I think that they will arrive at the conclusion that they exist uh, and that more action probably needs to be undertaken. But if you look at solar winds, that did not deter Russia. Is naming and shaming enough? Or how should the U.S. respond to solar winds? Yeah. Well, I, I would be uh, loath to get in front of the administration, right? So I think as I've looked at uh, what the NSC has done, uh, Ms. Newberg and others, I mean, very accomplished, very thoughtful practitioners, a lot of deep experience and great relationships, quite frankly, that bridge both sides of the aisle. You know, cybersecurity is not a partisan issue. Honestly, it's one of those areas which is widely supported, uh, maybe not completely or fully understood uh, in the political chambers, but it is widely supported as a consequential issue, potentially of grave importance. Um, look, naming and shaming should be part of the solution. Uh, it is rarely the only thing that you can do. Um, this goes back to a little bit about the whole government piece of the whole nation response. 
Um, but um, Russian Russian activity, alleged Russian activity, attributed Russian activity in cyberspace. Um, it's you know why are we surprised? I asked rhetorically. Operations that they conducted in Crimea conveniently after the close of the 2014 Sochi Olympics, ongoing operations in the Ukraine, um, you know, shooting down airlines, uh, little gray men, hybrid warfare operations, a pretty reasoned and thoughtful, comprehensive national military strategy, um, taking on board things like Maskarovka, deception, information, competition and confrontation. Um, honestly, uh, China probably occupies an interesting perch right now because they can learn um, from some of the, the best uh, thinkers in this domain over the last century coming out of the Soviet, coming out of, well, frankly, czarist Russia and Soviet, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, and now with the current leadership in Russia and then the U.S. Uh, from applied technology standpoint, and in my opinion, sheer innovation and in thinking about this space. Um, you know, they have an opportunity to to move very rapidly up that learning curve. How, there's some good questions coming in, so I want to turn to those. So if you have please. any questions, please um, submit them through the Q&A and I'll try and get to them. But one question coming in from Brian Powers is, where is China's line with regards to the U.S. and how far would they go in breaching U.S. infrastructure? How should we think of Russia and China differently in that in that sense with regards to breaching infrastructure? Yeah, that's a good question, right? So I, I don't have any better or keener insight into this. I just have an opinion of a concerned citizen, right? Um, we have a we have a pretty well understood competition and escalation dynamic with uh, Russia, right? We spent uh, several decades understanding the consequences of actions, and I think that our mechanisms of signaling and making sure that that signal is understood as we intend it to be heard is better understood in a higher confidence proposition than with China. I think China uh, continues to be opaque to us. And I think that there is probably um, the concern I would have is that, um, is that they might misunderstand a signal that we are trying to convey. And so I, I think that is kind of fundamentally the bottom line. In both cases, Russia and China, they are, they are thoughtful. They are, uh, you know, we can we can talk about this term responsible actors, uh, but they are responsible actors on the world stage. Uh, they do have a strategy. Um, they understand the instruments of national power. They do exercise uh, uh, and, and overview and purview of their national interest. What we need to do is just do a better job of trying to understand that. And we have another great question here from William Deal. Um, it's, he says, perhaps China has 10 times the personal personnel advantage in military cyber warriors, but to what extent does our greater reliance on industry and contractors make up for this? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I know William Deal pretty well, so he, he, that's a softball. Hey, I would, say, uh, I would say we have great opportunity with industry and academia, right? Uh, one of the features I would say about our system as opposed to bugs is that so much of our talent that goes into industry and the commercial space and academia has its origin in, the, in you know, frankly, the military services, right? Um, you know, uh, many get out, many go on to do bigger and better things to continue to innovate and to solve hard, challenging and thorny problems. And I think one of the great credits to uh, the DOD and other service institutions is to continue to, to foster that idea of service to a nation. Right. Uh, and a sense of uh, 
of contributing to something bigger than self, whether it's community or nation. And just to follow up on that, does the U.S. need to start earlier in school and start the way we did with STEM, focus on these cyber warriors and and starting in grade school, understanding cyber better? And what are we doing to um, build up this this, um, national treasure, which is really our people? Yeah. Hey, so that's a really good question. You've kind of uncovered a pet rock of mine, um, Jennifer. So thanks. Look, a couple thoughts about uh, young kids today, right? Um, yep. So my parents uh, told me that, that, you know, we were the end of civilization. You know, I'm sure my grandparents told them that, that uh, we were the end, they were the end of civilization. Uh, so I'm, I'm generally pretty happy and optimistic about our future, right? Um, I have a, a, a mentor of mine who talks about uh, we need to make sure we understand, however, the dis- difference between a digital native and an app native. Um, everybody that's under the age of 18 today is certainly an app native, very comfortable with this idea of multitasking, although an awful lot of, of data suggests that that might be um, um, foolhardy. We do need to get after uh, this digital native, though. We do need to foster um, talent and innovation and expertise in those things that I would say look like the ecosystem of cyberspace, right? The technology that builds it and secures it. The other thing though is um, I've become fond of adopting a term called cyber anthropology over the last couple of years, which is really, there's an awful lot of value in understanding how uh, people uh, and cultures use cyberspace. And so whether it's sociology or the humanities or the liberal arts uh, or um, you know, economics, um, or literature, you know, take your pick. Um, all of those are becoming um, the bailiwick in the realm and, and the output of, of interactions in cyberspace. Uh, and so I think that it's not just STEM. Uh, I know there's some people out there that might be cringing at me saying that, but one of the things I've learned is some of, some of my most, some of the most impressive uh, young talent, the, the most aggressive, innovative thinkers, uh, you know, really, you know, couldn't write a line of code or understand how it all works, but they had the ability to imagine how connecting an idea could have an outsized impact. Uh, and I, I think that we need all of it. And, um, you know, we, we rose to the challenge with Sputnik in 57. Um, we tried hard to rise to the challenge with a nation at risk, the education system in the eighties. Um, I think if we set our mind to it, um, you know, we can do it. We have a great question from Sean uh, Filipowski, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Uh, what's China's interest in our agriculture industry and our use of precision agriculture? Are we vulnerable? Well, so that's that's actually a great question. I would say two things. Um, um, you know, my sense, not being an expert, but just reading, you know, uh, news reporting, it looks like we are generating more and more breadbasket goods you know, the result of agricultural industry with more and more automation. More and more of that automation is tied to data uh, production and analysis, things like GPS for managing uh, how crops are harvested and managed, uh, livestock and herds, the whole production chain. And so uh, that's a risk. Uh, you know, we talk about supply chain with uh, chip fabs. We ought to talk about supply chain with, uh, you know, consumer packaged goods that look like um, agriculture, things that show up in the supermarket shelf. Number one. Number two, um, you know, we have a 330 million or so person problem. China has a 1.3 billion person problem. Uh, so, you know, China is undertaking an awful lot of uh, interesting approaches to figure out how to feed their population. 
Uh, and in the maritime domain, honestly, if you think about, you know, these, these warehouse factory fishing fleets, they get underway and are underway, you know, for five plus years uh, in the far reaches of the globe, uh, rapaciously um, harvesting, uh, you know, the natural resources, commonly in other people's territorial waters or economic exclusion zones, um, that, that level of consumption is, uh, is going to be a challenge. Uh, and so all of that technology, um, uh, applied cyberspace, as it were, um, is going to be at risk for us uh, and potentially to their benefit. Here's another good one. Um, I think we have, have I done this one? Um, um, Eric Wenger, is more effort needed to develop a common understanding of norms for acceptable government behaviors or global communications networks or are the norms commonly understood and the focus should shift to communicating consequences for crossing red lines? Should we be talking more about red lines? Um, yes, I, I, I'm not sure I full, I, I uh, understand the full expanse of the question, but generally um, I think it is in the interest of every nation to be very judicious about talking about red lines. Uh, you know, we have a recent history where sometimes things are stated as red lines or things are interpreted as red lines, and then we don't, um, you know, we don't live up to them or we don't honor or we don't have the consequences that are stated in those red lines. You know, as you think about deterrence theory, uh, you have to be credible, you have to be capable, uh, and you have to communicate. And uh, when you get in the red line business, all three of those apply. Uh, and unless you're confident uh, and that you have the, the national will, um, uh, to impose consequences on a red line being crossed, um, thoughtful business. I think what happens in cyberspace, um, you know, in the, in the conventional maneuver domains, things generally unfold, you know, 15 knots if you're at sea, 60 miles an hour if you're on land. I apologize for all the, the land maneuver warfare guys. They might say it's faster than that. Uh, you know, we're at 1,000 knots uh, in the air. Cyberspace, it happens uh, almost instantaneously, and it can happen everywhere. And so we should be very, very thoughtful uh, about um, how we advertise and talk about red lines. I do think uh, that we likely need them, uh, Jennifer. I just don't know what they are. Or do we need treaties like we had during the nuclear uh, era? Uh, what, what form could that take in cyber? Yeah, look, I think, I think, it, I think there's um, a role for treaties. And I think that, um, you know, the Cold War was a good example, um, you know, how, how we got very close to that, um, what would that call the nuclear winter clock or the midnight clock, and how the instantiation of uh, SALT and START and other things uh, gave us confidence that we were walking back from the precipice of, uh, you know, of nuclear Armageddon. Um, you know, but some of those treaties, uh, you know, have expired or nations that were signatories or participants uh, have walked away. Um, whether they did that uh, publicly because they said they walked away or demonstrably because their, their actions have revealed that they're not adhering to those treaties anymore is another case. Um, look, I think there's a role for diplomacy. Uh, I think that uh, treaties, diplomacy, interactions fueled by a very effective um, intelligence community uh, and a very strong, uh, you know, muscular diplomacy. I think there's value there. It sometimes feels, though, as though the U.S. has not responded to China for these many hacks. If I go back to the 
2015 OPM hack, 21.5 million people, all their data is taken. The Equifax hack, 145 million Americans can assume that their data is breached and taken and, and that China has it. Is it just that we put our hands up or did we respond to these and we just don't know about it as citizens? Or do you feel that that was a real weakness that we didn't respond to those hacks? Yeah, so uh, that's an insightful question and frankly an uncomfortable one. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that I could say that, that our response um, um, is, is necessarily public or not. We have taken some actions with respect to actors, attributed actors in China. You know, there's, there's been um, uh, indictments handed down. There's been some public discussion. Uh, there were, you know, presidential level discussions about uh, conduct and operations in cyberspace. I think all of that is necessary and must happen. Um, look, I, I don't have a better answer for you, um, Jennifer, but people, uh, you know, I've heard talk about this. Um, you need to be careful uh, throwing, you know, stones when you live in a glass house and we live in the biggest, classiest house. And, uh, and that's, that's just a fundamental fact of life, right? So, so as a nation, what could we do? What could a response be? Sort of a non-traditional one because everyone wants a, a response to look like a punch. I don't know if that's the answer. I think a response could be make it very, very hard, increasingly more challenging and difficult for them to punch us. So that's number one. We need to, we need to move away from the response or react business. And we need to get into a more assertive posture with our own defensibility, our own security, uh, and we just need to be better. Shannon Favre of um, CyberScoop has a question. Do you think Cyber Command should be targeting infrastructure and disrupting hackers that are responsible for attacks on hospitals, healthcare sector, Chinese hackers, or otherwise during the pandemic? Um, I think CyberCom uh, should be very, very concerned uh, and cognizant of uh, any and all actors, period. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I want to go back to Taiwan, and, and you were out at Indo-PACOM for so many years. What, what good do you think these freedom of navigation uh, operations do at this point? Is this something that China t- just rolls its eyes at? Is it really annoying to them? Is it something that could trigger a response and escalate? What are your, what are your thoughts on these FONOPs? Yeah, so I think uh, FONOPs are things that the United States Navy has been doing since its inception as part of promoting the values uh, and the recognition of international law and treaty, period. Uh, I think that we do it. We do it all the time. We do it everywhere. And we do it not necessarily uh, targeted against any one country. Um, it is likely that you could say that we've done FONOPs against some of our treaty allies and partners simply because uh, uh, in the international system, we, have a, we, are, we are registering a dispute to a claim of international seas, uh, and that is the mechanism by which we table that. It can then go into the diplomacy process. It can go into uh, the maritime courts and so on. There's a mechanism to do it. Um, sure, I think... I think uh, a fun op in and around uh, the Strait of Taiwan, or interestingly now, uh, potentially as interpreted by China in the South China Sea, uh, there is risk there that it could escalate or be misunderstood. That would be uh, shameful, right? And it would be a tragedy. 
I can tell you, in my opinion, based on my observation, um, the U.S. Navy plans those uh, with great care, very deliberate, and they are always executed very, very professionally. Uh, and there, there is, in my judgment and in my view, not one scintilla of an opportunity to interpret those as any way aggressive, in my opinion. Talk about the role, this is from Robert Walker, the role of Chinese espionage efforts in the homeland. Are we, should we truly be concerned about the 1,000 Talents and the Confucius Institutes? Would you, uh, would you work with the Confucius Institutes? Um, China is a capable, competent peer actor on the world stage. Uh, it is a matter of historical record that uh, global actors uh, conduct espionage. We should be concerned about everyone conducting espionage inside the homeland of the United States. Um, and um, no, I don't think I would personally do business with the Confucius Institutes. If you were a university, would you close the Confucius Institutes? Look, I'll, I'll leave that. I'll leave that as a value proposition for the, uh, for the universities, right? I just think that the universities should go into every engagement eyes wide open. They should don't delude themselves. They should be very, they should be affirmative in their action um, as opposed to just not thinking about it. We have just a couple minutes left. I, I wonder if you could close out by talking about lessons learned. And you, you had 33 years. You, you've seen the rise of China firsthand, both in cyberspace as well as in the, um, at Paycom. What, what left you sleepless? What are you most concerned now that you've, uh, you've left government? What should we be focused on? Yeah. Um, okay, so thanks for that. I know Jamil wants to get in here in the back end, so I'll try to keep it brief, right? One, I would just say the thing that gives me the most heart and the thing that I miss the most are the people that are in the mission, right? I, am, I was captivated by, by being a small part uh, of that enterprise. Um, I truly think that they are phenomenal individuals. They operate with great character and professionalism. And, uh, and I think that um, empowering them and trusting them um, um, is to our advantage as a nation. Uh, and so that is what I miss the most. I also think that uh, for our nation, uh, those things that look like promoting uh, the agency of the individual and the sovereignty of the United States are going to be increasingly bound up in cyberspace. The thing that concerns me of late is our ability to lose context uh, in information and confidence in the trust of that information. And I think that that is something that we as a nation could uh, educate uh, and focus on uh, more and more. Then last, I would say uh, there is something which I don't know how to explain or articulate uh, that is uh, intrinsically resilient uh, and amazing about uh, our nation, which is, a, which is its ability to genuinely, you know, I grew up hearing about the melting pot. I'm a big fan of the melting pot. I think that's an amazing feature. That is a feature of America, this idea of a constitution, um, you know, give us your weak, your hungry, your poor. Uh, and let Americans uh, just be amazing, and they can. So uh, thank you. Well, thank you. That's a nice note to end on. And Jamil, I'll toss it over to you, and, and thank you for joining us today. It was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, Jennifer, Admiral White, thank you so much for joining us today. What a great conversation. Uh, really uh, important points about collective defense, deterrence. Uh, you know, our, our adversaries are not a 1,000 feet tall. We can 
uh, and and will succeed, but particularly if we if we remain uh, united as a nation. So uh, thank you again to both of you for being here. I want to highlight for the audience uh, that our, we have an upcoming event in two weeks from uh, from now on Wednesday, March 17th at 5 p.m. Eastern. We'll have our NATSEC nightcap series with Leon Panetta, the former Secretary of Defense. In addition, please check out our website at nsi.gmu.edu. We've also launched a new blog, The Skiff. The link is available in the chat box. Do check it out. Uh, after the webinar ends, there'll be a chance for a survey. Please take a look at it. And thank you again for being here. Jennifer Averill-White, really appreciate it. We look forward to seeing you all again in the coming weeks as we focus on China's rise and preserving U.S. technology innovation leadership. Thanks a lot, everyone. Have a great afternoon. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.